scripture reading for the morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. Other boats were with him. A great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat, so that the boat was already being swamped. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? He woke up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. Then the wind ceased, and there was a dead calm. He said to them, Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with a great awe, and then said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us. Amen. One of the finest books ever written on the art of parish ministry is entitled Preaching as Local Folk Art by the biblical scholar Nora Tubbs Tisdale. The entire premise states that to best preach, to best pastorally care for, to best lead a congregation, clergy must do two very important things. First, they must exegete the biblical text, understanding each pericope's historical, literary, and social context. There are thousands of resources that help clergy with this task, and it is often the most visible, public element of one's call. But second, and far more important, according to Tisdale, is that a clergy person must also exegete the community they are called to serve, fully understanding the unique particularities that distinguish one parish from another. For instance, what is it about Westminster that distinguishes us from the old Presbyterian meeting house other than our amazing parking <laughs> and Patrick singing? Whoa, whoa! And our pulpit. Uh, wait, wait, a resurrection moment from the pulpit. Uh, we're good. Exegeting our community through the lens of Christian formation is what I have been attempting to do with you all my entire time that we've been together. And you have been providing me with some amazing and foundational feedback. One of my favorite examples is that I was with a group of members, and I asked, does anyone have a most favorite member of the clergy? Or, excuse me, of the Trinity. Close. Of the Trinity. <laughs> this, of course, being God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. Now, when the Holy Spirit came up as a resounding first, and God came in a very distant second... It provided me the opportunity to say, clearly this congregation just isn't that into Jesus. A question 
that I have asked many of you this past year is what has been one of your most formative faith experiences. And again, by a large margin, many of those responses have shared a similar theme. And that theme has been a death. The death of a loved one. The death of a parent. Of a child. Of some other relationship. I've pondered why this is. Why death has been so common for us. I mean, we are a resurrection people, after all. But it has to be. It just has to be. In part because of what we have all been living in and through together these last 16 months. It should come as no surprise that for many of us, for this season of pandemic, death has been an alarming constant. Now, it may seem odd at this particular time, after the opening up of worship, congregational singing masks off, these last few weeks of glorious, robust, spirit-filled worship, full of praise and song, like the sanctuary hadn't witnessed in months. And yet I'm reminded that not all of our beloved saints of Westminster are able to yet physically be with us. As Ecclesiastes reminds us all, everything does have a season. And for many, this pandemic is coming to a conclusion. But for many, this season is only becoming even more difficult as these days drag on and as the health recommendations remain the same. Last week in Pastor Larry's children's sermon, he named that the sanctuary, the space that we are physically here worshiping in together right now, is a location that people come to for many different reasons in their lives. And one of those is when they're grieving. One of those is when they are sad. And there are many, many in our congregation and far more throughout the country and the world who are unable to come to their sanctuary because guidelines still display for them a bright red masked face. That's what it shows for their demographic. For them, this time is even more difficult because here, with all of you, is where they want to be. But they can't. Here, right here, with all of you, to fully participate physically so that we can collectively carry together their grief. Given that we just celebrated the very first federal Juneteenth, while we are in the middle of Pride Month, should remind us that the barriers that have been erected to impede all of God's people from worshiping together have a history far longer than just COVID-19. And as we work to ensure that God's beloved community comes to fruition soon and very soon, we must carry that grief together. Now, the person that I have heard lately describe the importance of this communal grief holding most poignantly and powerfully is the Reverend Emily Berman D'Andrea. During a recent adult formation class, 
Reverend Vandrea shared that a formative experience she had when she was a member of this church was that before she felt called to ministry, when she was a young adult member here, worshiping, serving, fully participating in the life of this congregation, the most formative experience that she still carries with her was not a Christmas service with snow, was not an Easter resurrection moment. It was the way that this congregation carried her in prayer after the death of her mother. As a young adult, living in a brand new city, suffering from pain and grief, you, Westminster, you were her balm in Gilead. In fact, it was the love and the support, the encouragement, and the care from this congregation that helped Emily further understand that she was, in fact, called to professional ministry. And the way that she still leads weekly worship has been forever influenced by that act of merciful compassion by you. You see, for this preacher, the biggest test facing us all is not what will worship look like in autumn, how will we ensure that we maximize the virtual space in our ministry moving forward? It isn't our stewardship campaign amidst the second year of pandemic, or even the numerous staffing vacancies that we're prayerfully striving to fill. For us, the big test is how we are able to hold that relief and that joy that so many of us rightfully are experiencing right now as well as that elongated sense of continued grief and sorrow that so many of us are rightfully experiencing right now. At the same time, together. Our lectionary passage for today does speak directly to this spiritual conundrum in a handful of ways. The classic Jesus controlling the weather demonstrates not just a physical power, a healing, but the ability to control creation itself. Creation, again, that arena that John Calvin refers to as the theater of God's glory. Knowing that this is Mark's account, it should come as no surprise that the entire pericope, this entire section that we just read from, is very active. We can actually see this section as a movement itself in the Mark and Jesus account from one period to another. Before Jesus says, let us go across now to the other side, he had been teaching using the gift of parables, providing some of the most famous ones from the Bible. The parable about the sower and the parable of the mustard seed. Immediately following this story, once they reach the other side, Jesus puts on a different messianic hat and starts his work as a healer, first exercising the garrison demoniac and then restoring to life Jairus' daughter and unintentionally healing the hemorrhaging woman. There is a clear ministry shift. We too find ourselves amidst transition, crossing over to another side, Another side of life in 
whatever we end up calling this season of the pandemic. That water imagery in this story is fitting for us too, is it not? For how often in our sacred texts does a water-crossing mark change? The end of something, the start of something new. Noah, the ark, the great flood, the Hebrew people entering the Red Sea and enslaved people and exiting as enlightened, emboldened, and empowered. Paul's life certainly had a few startling water crossings. There's baptismal imagery here as well. For just as one dies and rises in Christ, something new awaits Jesus and the disciples on the other side. And let us never forget that if we truly believe that Jesus is both fully human and fully God, then it is in fact that same voice in today's passage that proclaims, Peace be still, that originally spoke the good news of creation over the swirling waters in Genesis. It was, it is, that same power, that same dominion, that same merciful voice that in the same breath asks the disciples and therefore asks us today the question, why are we afraid? It's actually a very pertinent question. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, fishermen recruited into Jesus' unique way of uninhabited life, would have been particularly conversant with the Sea of Galilee and its storms. This was their surf. There may have been no one on earth more prepared to handle the surge, more aware of the deadly potential for no return. Families and friends across Galilee no doubt harbored horror stories of the life-silencing drama, the chaos of these swirling waters. And yet Christ with them, and Christ is with us, and asks, why are we afraid? Now, if there has ever been a congregation that finds a truly bizarre comfort in chaos, it is you, my dear friends. Your lives are constant chaos. Every two years, every four years, every six years, every special election cycle, every liturgical cycle, every news cycle. It is a proverbial spin cycle. And somehow you all enjoy it and one another, which is why you're here worshiping today. In the ancient Near Eastern imagination, water and wind symbolized chaos and disorder. Chaos shakes the disciples' ship, fills it with water, remember? It's almost ready to overturn. A scene of shaking, a scene of almost sinking, that manifests itself in an expedition beyond their most familiar horizons. Their journey challenges their faith and jeopardizes their peace. Of course they are afraid. And doesn't this, for all of us today, sound so familiar? Just thinking back on my own pandemic experience, we had three COVID deaths on our block. I can tell you what was not fun and what was chaotic and what brought along a lot of fear was seeing the ambulance and the EMS come to these houses of people on a street we just moved into, entering those houses, 
in full hazmat gear. Three times. Fear. Chaos. There's right now only three chairs up here on the chancel. Because fear and chaos has been the journey we've all been on with Reverend Whitney. We're doing our best to care for her and encourage her as she heals. But during these nine plus months, there have been moments for all of us of fear. Moments of chaos. I can tell you a moment that scared me was sitting in my living room, watching on TV on January 6th, and sending texts to these two incredible men, members of the Trinity. <laughs> Who works in the Capitol building? Whose loved ones are there? How can we pastorally care for them while we're watching this on TV? Fear. Chaos. That has been our season. As Stephen Marsh wrote in last Sunday's post, eventually there will be studies, falsifiable theses with quantifiable results, COVID's effect on suicide rates, divorce rates, school participation, mortality, depression, anxiety, economic output. But none of them will get it. No study could ever capture the lived experience of this pandemic. Its peculiar, oppressive texture, the bracketing of time, the asterisks hovering up there right above all of our lives. What is it that we just lived through? What is it that we're coming out of? We do not yet know what that is. But we do know that we all have to live into this call together. All the fear, all the delight, all the confidence, and all the confusion. As we learn how best to carry these emotions together, the way forward will present itself. For many, the daily languishing, languishing, as sociologist Corey Keyes writes, or that sense of stagnation and emptiness, the feeling as if you were muddling through your days looking at life through a foggy windshield. Sounds familiar. Well, that languishing feeling, that may be here with many of us for a while. And as a people who have expanded the way that we imagine community, it's time for us to continue in that mold and continue to hold together one another's joy, their grief, and yes, even those who languish. As Desmond Tutu reminds us, my humanity is bound up in yours, for we can only be fully human when we are together. So what will things look like once we've crossed this stormy chaos? and landed on the other side. Perhaps Dr. Robin Wall Kimmerer and the wisdom of the indigenous Potawatomi people can give us the best answer. Kimmerer is a distinguished teaching professor of environmental and forest biology and the director of the Center for Native Peoples and the Environment, and she writes of a phenomenon that many of us have probably seen 
but we may not have the right jargon, the precise vocabulary to describe. The word is papui. Say it with me. Papui. Papui is the force which causes mushrooms to push up from the earth overnight. Now I can tell you that this past spring, while I was languishing in the omnipresent chaos, the storm of this pandemic, one morning I noticed a lone, solitary mushroom pop up in the backyard. Puff pooey. The next morning, a few of its mushroom friends joined in, and there was now a spattering of mushrooms. Pa-poe. Within the week, sections of the backyard had turned into mushroom troops, as this mysterious life force caused all of these mushrooms to burst forth, to be born, to come to life. Pa-poe, this indigenous term for life, was created by a people who lived close to and relationally alongside the earth and understood a world of being full of unseen energies. Papui is the word for communal life emergence, best experienced, best observed, and most properly used, not when that first mushroom emerges, but when the entire yard is awash in fungi. You see, Papui is not about resurrection or return or re-emergence. It is, in fact, about birth. It is about creation. It is about something brand new. We have not yet reached that Papui fullness yet. We aren't medically or scientifically or socially there just yet. But we are clearly transitioning, crossing over to the other side. We are well on our way to Papui. And that is where Christ brings us today. Bringing us there to another shore, to another reality, after that storm has calmed and our passage is safely completed something communally new and to something that's not yet known. But we do not reach it by ourselves. We only arrive there once we are all present on shore. None of us face this alone. So why are we afraid? We only experience that sacred joy, that festive energy, that terra firma birth, when we carry these things and when we carry one another together. Amen.